This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Esther Jaffe, a marine microbiologist and, quote, blue-collar scientist whose work on fishing and research vessels from the Gulf of Alaska to the Gulf of Mexico has led her to a shellfish hatchery in Terracea, Florida. They specialize in algal biochemistry and striking off to sea for personal growth and profit. Esther, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. I am so delighted to be on the show. Thank you so much for for joining us. And I it, I think the only way that this could be better, especially after reading that bio, would be if you were recording this from the deck of an actual ship and there were visibly like barrels uh, rolling around on the deck behind you. That is the dream, isn't it? I actually brought one of your books with me when I went to sea. So in a way, your presence was there along with me in the Gulf of Alaska on the high seas in one of these huge typhoons even that we had coming from Japan. Uh, we sheltered in a cove and I was very comforted by your words. Well, I can die happily now because you just said that you took me to sea and that's the only aspiration I've ever had as a writer or a, a human being. So I will be done for the day. I'm just <laughs> going to lie down quietly and you can give advice to people if you like or just talk about algae if you prefer to do that and, and that'll be the show. Amazing. Whew. All right. All right. I, I This is such a strong opener, possibly the strongest opener I've ever experienced. Yeah, I am going to apply a cool compress to my forehead and, and ask that you read our first letter. Would you mind? I would not mind at all. And in fact, I'm very excited to do so. The subject line is flaked, not late. My boyfriend and I live separately in an expensive West Coast city. My job went remote during the pandemic and is going to stay that way. I've always been open about how I don't want this city to be my long-term home. My boyfriend wants to go to graduate school. I suggested looking at schools in my hometown in addition to here. He was open to it and later asked me to send him some options and told me he would apply. Recently, when I asked how applications were going, he said he applied to the schools here, but not the ones in my hometown because he missed the deadline. He didn't. I know that because I sent him the info in the first place, and after our convo, I double-checked. I'm furious that he lied and really sad that I no longer think we are envisioning the same future. If he had told me he really didn't want to move, I don't think I would feel nearly as upset, and I would still want to talk about our future. Now that he's lied about it, I'm not even sure where to start. How do I have a thoughtful conversation with him and not let my emotions about the lie overrun the conversation we need to have about the future? Part of me isn't sure this is salvageable, but another part of me feels that this is a huge overreaction. What do you think? Do you think it's a huge overreaction? I think that on the scale of overreactions, it's probably not the hugest in the entire history of the world. But I do think that the writer sounds like they're in a heightened state of frustration and betrayal, possibly before they've done kind of the important work of context gathering and speaking to another human person. It's really easy to get wound up in your thoughts when you have just 
one sticking point like this. And it is a sticking point, of course, but I think there's a path out of here rather than an unsalvageable relationship and jumping overboard and like bringing a a barrel with you to float on. I think there's salvage here. Yeah, I I think that's useful because I, you know, I, I certainly, when I read this letter, some of my initial reaction was, sounds like that initial conversation was pretty bare bones and it's possible there are other ways to think about what your boyfriend told you that aren't necessarily making a really firm, committed promise and then breaking his word. Certainly there are ways that I feel like it is possible to look at this outside of the context as as lying. But I think what's maybe important, letter writer, um, given that you haven't yet, it sounds like, said anything to your boyfriend about this, you haven't yet like yelled at him or like moved all your stuff out or like blocked his number or or done anything that could potentially constitute an overreaction. So I would say, you know, you may or may not decide that all of your feelings that you had in the first flush are the feelings that you're going to carry with you through this conversation. But you haven't yet overreacted. You haven't yet done anything. So now I think is maybe a useful opportunity to just sort of neutrally investigate. I'm a little surprised by my own anger. I'm finding myself feeling really, really angry. What's that about? Have I gotten mad at this boyfriend before? Is this maybe my first time getting mad at him? And I can kind of take a minute to sort of think, are there other things that I've been mad about but maybe didn't want to pay attention to previously that are now kind of joining up for the ride? Is this speaking to like a more global anxiety about the future and finances and moving and living separately that I've been wanting to avoid? Am I angry because I feel like he has a habit of maybe saying like, yeah, 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 I'll check that out or I'll probably do this. And then just, I feel like he says that to get me off his back and he never thinks about it again. Like all of those are possible readings here and and all of them are potentially useful and interesting. And I I guess that's what I would say the most on the question of whether or not you might be overreacting. Um, I don't necessarily think that he thought of himself as making a promise when he said, send me some of that info I'll apply. Um, it's it's also possible that he like made different decisions or changed his mind or like looked at some of the information and then later missed the deadline. So, you know, lots of possibilities there, but but certainly I think it's not fucked up or bizarre that you're angry. Like you had an expectation and you want to talk about it. Yeah, I think there were a couple of interesting things I picked up from this letter. Little specifics. It sounds like a lot of these conversations have taken place over text. Mm -hmm. Like the language of I sent him over these options, he asked for options and I sent them to him. And the fact that you don't physically live together. Additionally, when it comes to the fact that he didn't immediately have some response to your response to his saying, oh, I missed the deadline. That's a difficult thing to not respond to in face-to-face conversation. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that happened over text as well. So it sounds like a lot of this has been intermediated by a text conversation or some other form of limited information conversation that might be contributing to a lack of context on your part as well when you then have to process this inside your own head and that's where things start to get piled on and snarled up. So when I get worked up over this kind of thing, I think context is always really helpful and One thing I kind of read from this was that it was possible that he said he missed the deadline, but the deadline is next week, or 
He said he missed the deadline, but you know the deadline is March 15th, so what's the deal there? I think recognizing that applying to grad school is a really complicated thing, and you might not have been super part of this process if this is the first time you're asking about it up until now. So it sounds like you haven't, beyond the baseline of sending those recommendations, you haven't been super participatory yet. And maybe you want to be more participatory. Maybe you want to learn more about your boyfriend's process for applying to graduate school. What's exciting him about these West Coast expensive city universities? And, you know, maybe what you think is exciting about the universities in your hometown. So I think there's a lot of useful context you could be getting if you were having a more organic conversation with this person. And having that in your head going forward, one of the ways to release some of that tension that can get pent up there is, huh, I wonder if he wishes we'd gone and toured those universities together. I wonder what might be interesting about those universities for him or what might have really compelled him about these universities that are near where we currently live. Maybe he has some connections there that I'm curious about. Maybe there's a program there that he really loves Maybe he didn't even tell me about it because he knew that I was kind of focused on those faraway universities. Mm -hmm. So letting yourself have that little release valve of there's another conversation here and it's about my boyfriend's future, even apart from as it pertains to me. So letting yourself think about that and then when you do have this conversation, which is kind of the second phase of the question is how do I have this conversation without self-sabotaging due to my heightenedness? have a curious conversation about what he wants out of grad school in addition to what he wants out of your relationship. You don't live together yet. You're not bound in that way. And that can lead to miscommunications about priorities and what he's invested in. So framing the conversation in that respect as your entryway to talking about the future might give you a lot more interesting information, might get you excited about what your boyfriend is passionate about. Mm -hmm. And that might help stop the feedback loop of, but he lied, but he misrepresented this, but he said the deadline already passed, but I know it's next week, so what the hell? Right. That might help. Uh, Yeah, especially because like, I feel like there were sort of two possible readings of either he missed the deadline, which still exists in the future, in which case there's still time. I mean, he might not actually want to do it, but at least you can talk about that in real time. It's not just like a lost cause. Like you can say, by the way, the deadline is such and such a date. Does that change anything for you? Um, Or he said, I missed the deadline and you felt like, no, you didn't. I sent you the information before the deadline had passed. And he meant like, I missed the departmental deadline or I missed the chance to get my materials together. So again, like It may have been absolutely like a deliberate lie. It may have been something closer to, you know, your sense of what he needed to get ready was not the same as his sense of needed to get ready. Either way, I I don't think that's something that I'll be able to accurately guess. So I'll just leave that as, as two different possibilities. But yeah, either way, there's certainly room for a conversation here. Not least because, you know, you know, letter writer, you said he'd thought about going to grad school. You said, why not my hometown? And he said he was open to it. I think you must know on some level that's not the same thing as like it's the deep desire of his heart to go to that particular school. Like you made a suggestion that would have been convenient for you and he said he would think about it and then he said he would apply. And, you know, again, if you if you still feel really frustrated about 
you know, what you eventually determine to be like conscious lying, you have every right to. But I also think that there's probably room to, you know, acknowledge that you had at least some cues that this was not something he was really excited about. This wasn't an idea he came up with independently. This was, you know, you want something and he's been maybe a little bit evasive on the subject. And so you tossed out an option that seemed like it would work and he didn't object. And now time is dragging on and you're you're noticing he hasn't really put in any effort to make those things happen. So I think, yeah, you know, by all means, as long as you're not screaming your head off or or saying that he's like, you know, an, a, a fundamentally untrustworthy person, if you just want to say, you actually didn't miss the deadline, maybe I missed an opportunity earlier to ask you how you really felt or to give you room to say that you weren't interested in these places. But regardless, I feel frustrated that you weren't clear with me sooner. Do you have any interest in going to these schools? I'd like to live back in my hometown again, you know, this time a year from now, this time two years from now. Um, does that actually sound reasonable to you? Do we want the same thing? And, you know, you can certainly share that you feel angry and frustrated. You can say that you're inclined to break up. That's fine. You know, you say, I don't want to let my emotions about the lie overrun the conversation. Again, short of like, do what you need to do to make sure that you're composed enough to not like start this conversation by screaming. But if you feel really angry and frustrated and you think, I don't want a partner who gets kind of evasive and, you know, over promises and under delivers, that's a perfectly good thing to think about in this context. And I, I don't think, I don't think your goal should be not let my emotions about this lie overrun things. Like obviously again, don't let them lead you to do or say something rash. But I, I think maybe some of the fear there is like, I don't want to, get angry and then break up. And I think that's actually fine. You're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to say, I don't like this. Like, I want a partner who's willing to honestly fight with me and who will tell me to my face, I don't like this idea. And then we hash things out. Like, that's what I'm looking for. Hmm. On the other hand, I do feel like the letter writer is asking, suppose I really do want to have this conversation. You know, suppose that this is my path forward. How do I do that? How do I engineer that? It, it, does, it does seem like a social engineering problem on some level, especially given how much of this has happened either over text right. or in passing. So I think one of the really good ways that the letter writer might be able to approach that, especially if you're worried about articulating it the way you want to on your terms, you really want to represent yourself fairly and represent your relationship fairly. I might start out, I might broach that subject by grounding it in a request for meeting sort of text. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like we're at a major crossroads right now, and I'm feeling more and more drawn away from major West Coast city and towards hometown. Mm -hmm. Before we make any more big decisions about the future, do you think we could get together and exchange notes about what we want out of the next few years? Like, could we have a meeting of the minds this weekend? I would really love to do that with you. <laughs> yeah. And then having that set up, having that framework for yourself, that kind of helps you reel yourself in as well and say, this is exactly what I want to accomplish. Even if I find myself feeling heightened there, even if I find myself hearing information I don't want to hear, this is a summit. This is a symposium between me and the partner I love so goddamn much I want to bring him to my hometown with me. This is a big deal, and I'm going to conduct myself in a way that represents fairly my interests and what I've figured out that I want, which is to move out in two years, which is to work from my hometown, 
or some similarly sized suburb in the same approximate region if that is better for you. But those are my lines. What are your lines? Do you want to stay here? Are you more interested in Purdue than you were in um, Emory? This is a great conversation to have. It's exciting. You love this guy, I hope. Uh, You like this guy. You wanted to start a future with this guy. So plan it out. Hash it out. Make there be details. Let there be light. Yeah, and often my my best recommendation for something like this is to start with saying, I'm angry. I think it makes it easier to acknowledge your anger and, and you don't then have to let like your tone, um, you know, communicate it, you know, and even you can start by saying, I was surprised by how angry this made me. And that, you know, led me to kind of think more about like, what am I, uh, what, what I feel like is maybe missing in our relationship or what are some expectations that I want to, you know, put on you? Um, or what are some things that I would like you to to do, even if they're difficult? Um, even if it's a conversation where your answer is, I'm not really sure what I want the future to look like, but I think I'll probably default to the status quo. That might not be an answer you think that I want to hear, but I would really, really rather hear what you're honestly thinking than, than nothing or guessing or saying what you think I want to hear in the moment and then doing whatever else it is that you're actually planning on. Yeah. All of those are reasonable and possible. Um, it is okay to be angry as long as you are not um, yelling or saying really inappropriate things. It is both fine to hear him out and also if you feel like his answers are evasive or unconvincing um, or continue to frustrate you to just say, you know what, this guy was great for a while, but I want to go do something now. And he is scuffing his shoes and looking at the horizon and I can't work with that. And that would be a perfectly reasonable reason to break up. So you know, I think it's really fine to be upset when you're thinking about breaking up with somebody. And sometimes it feels like there must be something wrong with this because I don't like the way that it feels. And that's very understandable, but that's often what a breakup starts. You know, it's a little bit like realizing you're going to have to throw up, um, (laughs) realizing you're going to have to break up with someone. Like it is a little bit, it's like you realize this unpleasant inevitability, but the more you lean into it, the quicker it's finished. The longer you try to stop from throwing up, the worse you feel. And that's disgusting. So I'm going to move on to our second letter because I don't like thinking about vomiting. The subject is disgruntled employee. At work, I'm on a two-person team where every other team in our department has at least four people. We're constantly putting out fires. We're given no time for professional growth and no one else knows what we do as a team because our work is siloed off from everyone else. I also know that my only coworker is leaving soon. I'm in full support of this. She's worth far more than what this company pays her and they've stalled her out at a junior position for God only knows why. I'm also looking to get out. However, I'm still in the early phases of interviewing and haven't gotten another offer yet. At the same time, I have the strong desire to confront my direct manager with a diatribe about how this team has been mismanaged, how my coworker has been unfairly compensated, how we are understaffed and overworked, and how I don't see any opportunities for growth at this company. Part of me feels like I shouldn't say any of this until I get an offer, but another part of me thinks, what are they going to do, fire me? They don't have anyone else who knows what this team does or how to do it. Even if they did find someone, I could make it for a few months on my savings until I find another job, which isn't a huge concern for me because my skill set is currently in high demand, a blessing I try not to take for granted. What do you think? Should I air my grievances now or bide my time? This is such a great setup because I I feel like, oh, do I have the like, chance to bless someone who can safely like rip into their boss and just say like, go for it and report back? 
Absolutely. I was so excited by this letter. I mean, first off, congratulations to this letter writer on your interviews and your advantageous position in the labor market. That is awesome. What a great place to be. And my first recommendation is actually I want you to take your coworker out for coffee or for dinner or for some amenable extra work activity and talk with her about this a little bit. Make this an allegiance between her and you to try and figure out, you know, what was her take on all of this? What does she want said? And what might she say or what might she not say? What might she want you to say? This is this is a great moment for social connection with someone who it sounds like has been your ally in the trenches in this horrible company, like this really terrible circumstance. And now you guys both have this opportunity to get the hell out of there and maybe have a really strong professional connection outside of this, since apparently you're in the same field. That is so great. Share that diatribe creation process with her. I think that's going to feel really satisfying. I think so too. And the only addition that I would make to that would be to frame it as, my goal is to have some kind of an honest conversation with the boss about the problems as I see it and the changes I think that they need to make. I want to do that in a way that doesn't, you know, tip your hand or like make anything about you eventually giving notice any more difficult? Do you have anything in particular that you want to make sure that I don't say? Um, and that way you're not asking her for permission or framing this as something that you can only do like on her behalf. Like you have plenty to discuss outside of her compensation if she says, I don't want you to talk about that element of it, such that like if she asked you not to, you'd still have so many grounds for a conversation with your boss. And then the two of you, yeah, can kind of strategize about how much of this is going to be come to Jesus. This is my last straw versus how much of this is going to be like polite, but strong recommendations. It sounds like, again, because you have a fair degree of flexibility, you can kind of choose which tone you would rather take with your boss and then pursue it from there. Um, And maybe then the question for you is just, would I rather have this conversation with my boss and then set a time period, even if it's just in my own head of like, I'll stick around three more months or six more months to see if they actually execute on any of this. Or is it just like, I'm telling you this and then I'm mentally checking out and just going to like put in my notice too. Again, this is great because you have the freedom and flexibility to do whichever. It's really just a question of which would you prefer? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of timing, I think It all depends on what feels most comfortable to you and what kind of approach you're going to take to this. Because, of course, you ought to share some level of this with the company. It's not like you're just going to leave be like, this was great. I had a great time here and I love you all so very much. And my recommendation, since you're in such a powerful position here, is that you have the opportunity for a really deranged power play kind of fantasy, which I absolutely love. So when you feel a little bit confident about what your next step is, what I personally would do is send an email to your direct manager, possibly someone at HR and possibly their boss, and request a mediated meeting to discuss performance issues you've observed in the department. The same way You know, somebody would be able to make you sweat like that if you were the one in a precarious position. You are not. You are holding the cards right now. Um, So perhaps after your coworker has left even, so when they are really in kind of a crisis mode, they need you. You don't need them. Kick them when they're down. Exactly. Right in the stomach. Take them out. So have a carefully prepared, consummately professional write-up of everything that you want to say you know, invite as many managers as you want, as many people as you want to make this, you know, a full meeting, like very serious, very professional. 
Uh, but nothing matters because you'll be gone in two or three months anyway. And you will, you know, in your sweetest and most earnest voice, explain everything that you feel went wrong. Then helpfully email along a polished write-up of the ways that you and your team were organizationally failed, perhaps along with your two weeks notice, if you can wait that long. And then go out for coffee with your coworker again and tell her what their faces looked like. Uh, that's a really a beautiful image. I can see this in in a, like a certain Drew Barrymore movie uh, in the late '90s or early aughts. I love that vision. That is absolutely one option you can pursue. I suppose I should offer an alternative, just so you have you know different degrees of of escalation that you can sort of choose from. Letter writer, you don't say to what degree some of this stuff feels like common knowledge around the office, to what degree it feels like just the two of you are aware of this and everyone else kind of assumes you're both getting along fine. I don't know. I mean, certainly reading this, I get the feeling of like, it's been a problem for a while and you've probably tried talking to your own boss, if not also others for a while, but I'm really not sure. So if you, if you have had this conversation with your boss a hundred times, you know, feel free to ignore this. But if you haven't had this conversation often, if you've only had it like in little small isolated cases, I, I think one step down from the big, beautiful, polished meeting with everybody is just an initial meeting with your boss, potentially after she gives notice, um, and to just say, like, I have two or three pretty concrete, big picture concerns. There's obviously, like, more to discuss, but the way that I see it, you know, this department is half the size that it needs to be. It, it's a, a size that doesn't scale to any other team uh, in this department, and that has led to, you know, the following, like, you know, pick one or two of the major fires recently. This is an ongoing issue. I think it needs to change. Um, I think it needs to change urgently, and it should have been changed a long time ago. What do you think? Does that strike you as anything uh, that you can do anything about? And then if your boss is just like, that'd be a great if we could do that, but we just can't, maybe you save yourself the time of the big polished meeting and you just give notice yourself. Um, maybe at that point you decide, all right, I will go for the big polished meeting and I'll really like pull out all the stops and try to make it clear to everyone that this is not just, you know, this is really serious. And even if you lose us both, I think you'll have these same problems with anyone you hire as replacements. Um, but all of that's really just a question of like how much time and energy you want to expend on this company, um, whether or not you see anyone potentially over your boss's head who might be slightly more sympathetic, or whether or not your boss, whether you've actually ever made a direct request to them about this before. Which, just to be clear, not that it's been like incumbent upon you. It sounds like they've managed this team pretty badly uh, for a long time. What you choose to do next will depend on how directly you have spoken to your boss about this in the past. And, and again, as always, like just make sure that you don't cross the line of saying, you know, and I hate your guts and I hope you get in a hot air balloon accident, you know, keep it reasonably professional. The only other thing then I guess is just the framing of that question at the end, air my grievances or bide my time. Not airing your grievances in the sense of like, I'm just going to get this off my chest and it's going to feel really good to yell at you just because that I think is not a good attitude to take towards the workplace, even if you are leaving the company. But honestly communicate the problems that you believe will lead to any future hires not being able to do their job successfully. I think that's the way of framing it. Again, like it's out of your hands whether or not they take your suggestions or requests or demands, but it's not airing a grievance like, and I'm finally going to tell this lousy friend what I've always thought of them, or like, and I'm finally going to tell off my like lousy boyfriend just because, you know, there's there's a 
a limit to how far that will get you in a work setting, but but to really just be clear, like this is why this job is impossible and this is what needs to happen instead, which is maybe like splitting hairs over a, a small distinction, but it is like the difference between giving somebody correct directions versus telling off um, a lousy friend. Have you ever gotten the chance to to tell anyone off at work or have you ever been told off at work? I have absolutely never done this sort of thing. I have 100% always been the, you know what? I'm gone. <laughs> Goodbye. I might not even send notice. I'm leaving. You know, good luck finding me. I'm hopping on a different ship. Exactly. That's what running away to sea is all about. They cannot reach you. You are far away. You are outside of cell coverage. What are they going to do? Wade through Pollock guts to get to you? No, they're not. It's their problem now. That is uh, truly brilliant. I guess then the only problem you would ever run into is if you needed to run away from a captain while you were at sea, and then you would just have to hope there was another vessel in the vicinity. That was the really exciting thing about my job, which was that I was hopping between different fishing vessels, collecting biometric data on the hauls, so I was never on any one boat for more than three weeks, which was amazing. It did great things for my workplace sense of security. I, I got to say, I mean, as, as you already know, and, and some listeners may know, the reason that you are here on the show with me today is is a, a while back, I sort of put out a an ongoing call for anyone working in, in STEM in any capacity because I had realized like I just had had a bunch of humanities professors and specialists on and I was just like, I don't really know any scientists. Any scientists even listen to the show and a bunch of you got in touch with me, which was so much fun. <laughs> but this is like, you know, in, in my fifth grade dreams watching The Voyage of the Mimi, you know, I think all fifth graders want to be marine biologists. It's like the first job that you imagine you want to have past like a kindergartner who's like, I want to be a ballerina or an astronaut. Like those are the two jobs. And, and firefighter, I think, are the three jobs little kids know. Mm-hmm. And so like as you start to get older, the next job you hear about is marine biologist. And so in some ways, I always think of that as being a job that's like mostly a childhood fantasy and not something that real people do. Not at all accurate, right? Because you do it. <laughs> yes, I do it, though it works a lot less like I think you envision it as working when you're in elementary school. There are very few dolphins, uh, very few opportunities to interact with dolphins. And when you do interact with dolphins, you don't want to be interacting with dolphins. They're terrible. They're awful. Whales are bad. Anybody who works on a fishing boat is like, fuck whales. Like the first boat that I was deployed on, we were on our way out and I go, <gasps> Oh my God, because we were surrounded by the most magnificent pod of sperm whales. Like there were multiple sperm whales swimming around us remarkably close. It was incredible. One was so close that you could see its roomy eye, like breaching just out of the water. They don't really like do a big jump the way some kinds of whales do, but you could see the shape of its head. And I was glued to the floor of the boat. I had my hands on the railing. I'm leaning over. Like this is the best moment of my life. You know, the captain spits overboard fucking whales. Because when you're on a fishing boat, the really exciting thing is that you are catching fish. People love to eat fish. So do whales. And they are much better at it than we are. I now wish that there was like fishery and and ocean going related stand up because I'm just realizing like all I want now is more of this um, from from you in a a series of increasingly grizzled uh, seagoing types. 
but yeah, you know, I mean, that makes a great deal of sense. That leads me to my next question, which is, you know, you do have blue collar scientist in quotes in your bio. And I was wondering, is there like a formal distinction amongst seagoing vessels of like, if you're in a commercial operation, that's technically blue collar. And if you're on a research vessel, that's technically white collar, or is this just a sort of idiosyncratic distinction that you've made for yourself? So it's something that other researchers who are actually either deployed to sea, who are working in the field directly, uh, we use it sort of to distinguish ourselves from the people who then take the data we collect and process it. And the real decisive factor between are you in a blue-collar science job or are you in a white-collar science job is could you wear a white-collared shirt to work or would it be a terrible idea? Could you wear the nice shirt your mom gave you for your holiday to go off to sea in? No, you really could not do that. Then the other sort of phylogenetic categorization there, the other metric you use is, do you have a desk? I have never had a desk. I always appreciate uh, a really straightforward distinction that's not just like, well, it's a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. And it's just like, nope, quick litmus test. Do you see a desk? No, then you're the other kind. That is incredibly useful. I, I think that's fantastic. You specialize in algal biochemistry. How How is algae doing these days? I feel like the answer is going to be too well, like the answer is good, but in a way that's bad for everyone else. But I'd love to hear from an expert. It's like you've been reading the news or basically any publication about algae lately. There are a lot of nutrients in the water And there are a lot of unexpected behaviors of previously existing phenomenons. Like in Florida, where I'm from, the Gulf Coast, the Gulf of Mexico especially, we have a species of dinoflagellate called Karenia brevis. And that's been noted as reoccurring. That's called a red tide that has reoccurred cyclically since the 1500s, which is the first written record of that happening that we have, which was when Spanish conquistadors showed up and noted that, my God, the water is red as though with blood. It smells terrible. The fish are dead. What's happening here? There's some speculation that some biblical plagues might have a great deal to do with algal blooms, like the ones that we see in both the ocean, in marine environments, and in freshwater environments, because they are remarkable. It is incredible. You can see the wine red color of the sea from the airplane on your way out. It's it's cataclysmic. It feels like the end of the world when you are just surrounded by eddies of fish in varying stages of decay. So these, uh, these red tides are escalating in both frequency and severity. That's something that even Floridian legislators don't deny. It is definitely happening and people would love it to stop happening because people don't go to the beach when their throat hurts every time they breathe and when the beautiful sugar sand is laden with rotting corpses. So it's a really interesting frontier, as it were, because some species like Karenia brevis, those are doing awesome. That species is having an amazing time. But a sort of frontier of phytoplankton science is the ecological interactions between these species and the interactions between microalgae and macroalgae, which is the seaweeds that we know. 
Microalgae can have this huge suppressive effect on seagrass because when they occupy the entirety of the water column, light, which is that essential component for phytosynthesis, can't reach all the way down to the seafloor, which is where you get turtle grass, which is where you get species of plankton that are larger. You get kelp. You get all these delightful things that we love to have because uh, little teeny tiny baby fish, little teeny tiny baby clams, they love to live down there. But if there's no nutrients, no light, it's not getting all the way down to the seafloor because it's filled with cells and rotting cells and constantly turning over dying cells. Uh, Those populations of seagrass and macroalgae get totally choked out. And then we lose seagrass and we lose a lot of other species. The same way if we lost all the trees in the Amazon rainforest, it would change a whole lot of things about how that ecology would work. Yeah, I mean, you know, my one understanding of, of of algae is it's like, there are three things that I know that bloom. Flowers, that's good. Algae and jellyfish, that's bad. Um, <laughs> and so I, I tend to think of like blooming as either like a wonderful, beautiful process or like you get a sickly feeling in the pit of your stomach when you hear about it. Like, oh, that shouldn't be blooming. That's not good. So thank you so much for giving me a little bit more context to that general vague feeling of badness. <laughs> and uh, hopefully... Hopefully you can help out. Hopefully you can make that better in some form or another. And if not, run away to see again. Yes, that's actually something that I'm actively working on right now. Um, I'm spearheading a project that's at my current place of employment where we are in the process of breeding and creating this mass of clams. So we are producing millions and millions of southern hardshell clam larvae. Already on board. We can do millions per week. The really exciting about thing about these guys is that they eat algae. They love to eat algae. They are brilliant at eating algae. And when they eat it, they sequester the nutrients in really amazing ways in their very complex little guts. So they take the algae that's free-floating in the water, they suck it in, they digest it, and then they pelletize it in a really fascinating way that allows that refuse then to be added into the sediment. So it's no longer in the water column. Now it's solely accessible to plants like macroalgae, like our seagrasses, that then can access that nutrients from the sediment rather than from the water column. So that gives them a huge leg up because the main issue with our ecology that we're seeing is that dredging and other human impacts have devastated the bivalve population in the Gulf of Mexico. We're looking at like levels 95% gone, like 5% of historical levels are out there. So what do we do? We put them back. We breed them en masse and we release them back. And we look at ways to prove that that's what's making things better. We've already done some preliminary projects and seen a lot of success. But right now we're devising all kinds of fascinating new methods to make sure that we know the clams that are cleaning up the ocean are our clams Mm -hmm. so that then other people will be able to replicate our success and really get some animals in there. This is one of those cases in which we're not trying to put like something to eat rabbits in Australia. (laughs) Right. Like the thing that eats the thing is gone. Mm -hmm. We killed it. We want to put it back. You, you weren't kidding about that tree analogy too, just in terms of like carbon, like sequestering, um, like it's such an analog function that feels like 
I feel thrilled because I feel like I generally grasp this very basic concept. Good luck. Keep us posted. Um, rather than close, I have a letter from a listener who who wanted to share some thoughts about uh, a recent letter um, from in, in particular from the the parent who was a former bully and who had been recently confronted by their son's substitute teacher. So I'll read that now. I think your answer completely missed the mark. What was clear to me with this letter is that the letter writer's primary goal was to continue to get away with her past behavior. I think the worry for her child is almost a red herring, at least a small concern for the possibility of misbehavior on the part of her victim. What seemed more clear was her wish to keep this from her wife at all costs. It felt clear that she knows how her wife feels about bullying, has always known that she was herself a bully, and is now worried that she's going to be seen as a liar. She knows how bad it is to lie by omission. She knows that she's guilty of it. And she knows how bad it would look that she neglected to tell her wife that she was a bully while listening to how victimized her wife had been all those years. And for her to say how much she's now changed and how much of a better person she is, I think it's odd that she places getting away with being a bully over coming clean. While I agree with your assessment of the teacher, I don't think it's as big a concern as you made it out to be. While I agree the teacher should be aware of what she says around the kids, it doesn't sound like they were overheard. Perhaps their body language was apparent, which is why the other parents turned around. But I don't think that the letter writer would have let go of an opportunity to charge this person with inappropriate behavior. And since she didn't, I think it's a fair assumption that the teacher was quiet and aware of herself. I think you glossed over how re-traumatized the teacher was. Here she was, this victim of bullying in her space where she seeks to reclaim her power and purpose face-to-face with a woman who tormented her to the point of near suicide, and her bully didn't even remember her. I think that deserved more focus from you. Instead, you gave her more room to excuse and distance herself from her wantonly cruel behavior. I don't think she's as worried about the teacher retaliating as much as she's worried about the possibility of the teacher telling other parents that may also be other victims of hers and wants to figure out a way to avoid her at pickup and drop off in the short term while concocting a good way to silence her in the long term. I think she's afraid that other victims she doesn't remember confronting her. To focus on everything but her behavior and destruction is to undermine the trauma she's inflicted and you're aiding her in getting away with it. I think you made the wrong call. You know, I think that... uh, I want to be open and receptive to this one. I do think that we maybe have more in common than this letter writer seems to think because um, I encouraged this letter writer to speak to her wife and in fact said, I think that it is necessary um, and unavoidable. So I, I think on that front, letter writer, you and I are are in um, on the same page, which is that, you know, the original letter writer does need to come clean to her wife, um, both because I think it's, impossible to keep this a secret further. And also because I think that their marriage needs to, you know, either be founded on this new truth shared between the two of them, or if it can't continue, then, you know, that needs to be something that they discuss openly. So I think this letter has less to do with, I think you should have told the letter writer to do something else. And more, I think you should have focused less on maybe helping this letter writer navigate what to do next or speaking more sternly. Um, I'm Yeah, I'm not sure because I, I think the advice that I gave that letter writer was you got to come clean and you, you can't try to just avoid this one forever. But, you know, that being said, I do think that I had also focused a lot on the logistics of pickup and the logistics of working with 
her kid now and didn't spend nearly as much time talking about what this reckoning might look like for her. I think just in part because I didn't get a lot of information about what the bullying looked like. Again, that's kind of built into this kind of letter because this letter writer has not, I think, done a lot of careful thinking about it yet. I think maybe just occasionally guiltily thinking about it and then trying to push it away. So I'm not sure that she yet has some of that insight herself and might not have been able to provide it in the letter. But um, I do think that that's true, that the letter writer would probably have said something if the teacher had been saying this loud enough for the kids to hear. So I think that's a fair critique and and um, a, a reasonable assumption to make about the original letter. I, I'm I'm a little bit less inclined to say that this was totally like a malicious or wild desire to not like share every detail about this with her wife. Um, but I can also really understand the importance of that other position um, and leaving a lot of room for the possibility that this will change how her wife feels about her um, and that perhaps it should, um, depending on the sort of context of, of what happens. So anyways, all of that is just to say, thank you for sharing this. I appreciate it. Uh, I think it was thoughtful and it's always useful, I think, to get to take a different look at a letter about something as like painful as this one, um, just because there's easy ways to miss certain angles when you're focusing on one person rather than the other. So, you know, the, the only thing that I think I would want to push back against a little bit is referring to the school as the teacher's space where she seeks to reclaim her power and purpose. I think the school needs to be the place where she does her job and teaches the kids. It, it, it's not primarily a site where she gets empowered. I, I can understand the importance of maybe her feeling that about her own life. Um, and none of that is to say that, you know, she wasn't totally reasonable to react as she had in the first place. I'm speaking here of the teacher. Um, but I don't think that, like, if teaching kids... Um, helps her feel better about her own experience being bullied. That's wonderful, but that is a side effect. That's not what her job is, and it shouldn't be what her job is. Um, on any level, teaching children should not be about uh, how it makes the adult feel as much as it should be about how the kids are taught. Um, but that is my only, I think, quibble. I think the rest of this is really useful. Thank you for this. Um, I will bear that in mind uh, in future letters where somebody is in a similar situation, and I will try to. Um, read through it a second time um, from another angle so that I don't come off as having been like myopic. So thank you again so much. Um, and then Esther, thank you for bringing in a breath of wisdom from the sea. When are you off to sea next? So at the moment, I work on a farm. So I'm in agriculture, but we regularly go out to attend to leases in the Gulf of Mexico where we keep clams. So could be any day now. It really just depends on who comes into work when they'll next ask me to go out and do some snorkeling. Good. Okay. Well, beautiful. And then the next time I have you on, I will try to have all farm-related questions. Um, just just a lot of lovelorn stable hands and ranchers and gardeners. Yeah. I was so excited coming on. I was like, oh, I'm going to have a whole framework where I say, whether this person should go to sea and which sea they should run away to, but none of these people should run away to sea. They should all talk to their friends and partners and beloveds. That would be such a great service, though, is it just if people could call you up and say, like, here's my issue. Which of the seas do you think would help me solve it? I would, I would absolutely uh, lean on such a service if it existed. 
bearing and get some halibut while you're there. It's delicious and a very well-managed fishery. Bless you. Uh, Esther, thank you so, so much. I hope that we get to have you back on the show very, very soon um, with more fish recommendations. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I just feel really strongly if you're like, I'm a lesbian. I occasionally date trans guys. Fight me. You know, like that seems perfectly reasonable and sane and lovely and fine. And I think if you were to say to your friend, like, I kind of think you're cute. This one surprised me a little bit. Do you ever think that it'd be fun to go out? Um, You know, great. And if he says that really hurts and offends me. You know, I hope that you could then say, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean it to. It sounds like you don't want to go out. Let's not go out. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.